This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Crafton, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Craft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 137. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. Now, before I get to my interview today with Jeremy Raper, and uh, just you know, wanted to note uh, we're, we're coming to you from uh, jolly old London. Uh, you know, just in honor of my interview with Jeremy, he's he's based in London, so uh, you know, London background, why not? Uh, I wanted to encourage you all to check out our full slate of podcasts this week. Yesterday, we published our latest episode of Avoiding the Crowd with Maj Don, where he focuses on why COVID nineteen themed stock plays are about to get tricky. I'm pretty sure we answered the question, but find out for yourself what you can do on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or on Podbean at avoidingthecrowd.podbean.com. On In the Market Trenches with Gary and Eric, they tell another story that actually did go well, uh, but it's not in the way that you may think. You know, see how riding the wave of corporate bankruptcies worked out for them. And you can do so again also on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or on Podbean at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. Now, on Friday, I'll be sharing our latest episode of the Investors Roundtable. This week, I'll tell you right now, is a fun topic. It's future 100 plus baggers and how to identify them. Tune in to see who will be joining our panel to discuss this topic. My daughter thinks that it'd be cool to go check it out too. So listen to her, listen to me, whoever you want, go check it out. She just rolled over, actually, and that was really damn funny. <laughs> so subscribe to the SNN Network YouTube channel to be notified. That's www.youtube.com slash SNNWire. And very soon, I'll be creating an audio-only stream so you can listen to the show wherever podcasts are available. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I spoke with Jeremy Raper. He is the founder and head of research at Raper Capital. I've known and been following Jeremy's blog for a while now and thought it was time to have him on to talk shop. You know, we break down his investing approach, investing frameworks, process for building a position and how an Aussie ended up in London. So thank you again for tuning into episode 137 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Jeremy Raper. Back to the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. 
And joining me today for the show is Jeremy Raper. He is a full-time investor as well as the founder of Raper Capital. Jeremy, how are you doing today, dude? What's going on? I'm doing great, Robert. Thanks for having me. How are you? I can't complain. Look at me. I'm in jolly old London, right? I mean, uh, why not? You're based in London. I get London background. So anybody who's listening to the audio, I got London in the background. If you want to check it out on YouTube, it's a, you know, it's a beautiful day. Your tech skills are better than mine. Funnily enough, the, uh, the cloudy gray sky that they've got right behind you there, that's perfect. London is always look like that. That that's, I figured, I always thought the, the like rain clouds, cause doesn't it, it rains all the time now. Close enough, close enough. Cloudy close and enough. kind of overcast is like par for the course. Perfect. Okay. All right. Well, we'll take, we'll take, we'll take this, this beautiful, hopefully it looks similar to this, you know, where you are right now. Um, but, uh, talk to me, let's start first, man. How are you doing? Everything's good. Are we on lockdown? What's happening in London? Yeah. Yeah. Hanging in there. I mean, it's, um, look, it's not lockdown. We're definitely kind of normalizing slowly. Uh, they, um, you know, basically the town's been open for the last call it five, six weeks, things are slowly getting back to normal. You walk around, London's a huge tourist city, right? So it still feels half of normal occupancy, I'd say, you know, in a similar way to New York, like you're in LA, but if you went to New York now, it still feels pretty ghostly, just given so much of the normal day to day is, is tourists. So there's very, there's no international tourism. So it's still a bit ghostly, but look, it's, it's on the right, it's on the right trajectory. I'm, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic and um, yeah, I can't complain. Uh, you know, my day to day hasn't changed too much throughout the lockdown as, as you can imagine as an investor and basically full time before the computer kind of um, inside job type situation. So for me, things are kicking along and um, yeah, just, just kind of going with the flow to the extent we can. So when was a good time to, to buy at the, at the low of, of British pubs. I mean, that, that, that I, I, I was joking about it on the investors roundtable with Adrian Day. He's like, you know, not, now might be the time, you know? So, I mean, are, where, where are we, did we miss it? Did I, did, did, did we miss that? You didn't miss it. You didn't miss it. Okay. It's one of the few sectors that really hasn't bounced much, if at all, um, is the, obviously the hospitality space in general, right? So anything that touches the on-trade, the on-trade being restaurants, pubs, hotels, Right. Uh, is still basically in the doghouse. So like I actually am involved in a few stocks. We don't have to go into specifics that are related to that theme. And it's just the sentiment is still just, terrible, right? It's just horrible. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's, it, it, it's to be expected, I suppose. But you know, once or if we have a vaccine and the idea that people won't go back out to the pub for a pint, I think it's, it's fairly ridiculous. So I think it's quite, quite an interesting hunting ground for people who can take say two, two, two to three year view. I mean, I think, I think we can all agree things are going to come back in, in, in hospitality and, and dining and all that stuff. It's just how long are you willing to wait, right? I mean, and yeah, how long are you willing to wait? And do you have the capital structure such that the equity can see the returns when people do come back, right? So in, in a similar way to airlines, right? So, you know, is American Airlines going to be around as currently capitalized uh, two years from now? That's a much tougher question than will people get on a plane again? So that, that's basically the argument you have with pubs. If you stick with the providers or let's say the drinks distributors who have clean balance sheets, you just have to wait. So you might miss out on other opportunities in the next 18 months, but there's still lots of interesting opportunities. See, Jeremy, this is why we're talking today, because everything you just said sounded way smarter than my, uh, my, my distillery, pardon the pun. 
But anyways, so uh, with that, man, Jeremy, <laughs> there we go. So Jeremy, with that, you know, let, let's start where it all began. You know, um, sure. let's get your background. When and where did your passion for investing begin? Sure. So just f- full disclosure, I guess I- I'm not actually English. I'm Australian. So I am living in London right now, but I actually grew up in Sydney, Australia. You had me um, fooled. You had me fooled. <laughs> It's close enough. The accent's close enough. I won't hold it against you. But, um, but yeah, I mean, look, I started really early because my, it's actually my grandpa was very into investing. My dad, not so much, but I got it from my grandpa. And look, I, it's kind of a silly story, but I came into a very, very small amount of money through like a very small family inheritance when I was, you know, maybe 13 years old. And because my grandpa was big into investing, he kind of encouraged me to look at stocks. And you know, it's like everything in life. You need a little bit of luck when you start out. That's what piques your interest, right? And so this was in 1998, I think, in Australia. So, you know, a relatively small market boom, internet boom was ongoing. Somehow I found two stocks that interested me. One was a building materials company called Boral, which is still around today. So, you know, super cyclical, you know, solid business, but very cyclical. Um, and, you know, I bought some and five years later, I think the stock price was the same. Uh, and, you know, I clipped a few dividends on the way. And I put half my money in that. Now, the other half of my money, I put in a hyper go-go growth stock called ERG, which made smart cards that are used on the Hong Kong subway system. Now, the goal at the time was they wanted to get those smart cards onto every subway system worldwide, hence the hot growth angle. Um, but it ended up going bust, as you can imagine. You know, the technology didn't scale or whatever. Now, I was fortunate, though, because I bought it at a dollar and... You know, every time the stock doubled, I sold half. And I think it doubled six or seven times before it went bust. So, you know, there was no real rhyme or reason. But even back then, I was kind of always looking to take a little bit of chips off the table if I went on a run. Or I was still more worried about downside more than upside, just naturally, just the way I thought about it. Um, As opposed to some other more growth-oriented investors who really take a view on a technology or, you know, a, a business like that would probably let it run and maybe make more, but also probably be more exposed if the thing doesn't pan out, right? So, you know, that was a very early example, but when you, you know, when you get a taste of it like that and you manage to five, six times the money, after that, I was just hooked. Uh, and so starting from a very young age, you know, in high school, I started trying to read a lot of prospectuses, all Australian stocks, right? Um, tried to invest some of those winnings in other sectors, resources, um, had a few other wins and got more and more interested as I, as I grew up. Um, and then, you know, then I ended up going to college in the United States. So that's kind of how I left Australia. And, I, you know, I didn't study finance or anything like that, but I kept investing because, you know, I had this nascent passion for it all through college, such that by the time I graduated in, you know, 2008, uh, I wanted to be an investor. I wanted to continue my career. Um, of course, it was 2008. <laughs> so you couldn't really find many investing jobs on Wall Street. Yep. Um, but a secondary passion of mine had been Japanese. So they've been studying Japanese through college at that time. Uh, and I, you know, I spoke pretty good Japanese even by then. And so basically I parlayed my Japanese language skills into a job on the sell side in Tokyo. So my first full-time job after school and in finance, obviously was working for a very large investment bank, a bulge bracket firm in Tokyo. And that's kind of where I cut my teeth, right? Cause I, I was only a salesperson, but you know, I was selling everything from convertible bonds to credit default swaps to, you know, to, to equity derivatives to structured products. Uh, and, you know, this is 2008. So everything from the, the very start of the, of the bust through the recovery and in between. 
Um, and, and there was a lot going on in Japan at that time. So basically my entire methodology or, or kind of, yeah, I guess my, my uh, approach as an investor is grounded in that, that first four or five years in Japan, my career. Um, and, then, and then since I left the sell side in 2012, I kind of bounced around between other hedge funds and working for myself, mostly working for myself. Uh, and now I, now I manage my own money full time and also do this research service, Rate for Capital, that you mentioned, which is essentially kind of like the, the base salary, which provides the stability versus the market PL, right? So I write up my core ideas using my methodology and, you know, people can subscribe and, you know, look at the stocks that I'm looking at and see exactly how I'm thinking about them. And, you know, it's, it's a good, it's a good mechanism for me to also get feedback on my ideas. Um, and I started that quite recently, actually, just in the last few months. All right. So let's take a step back. You know, I'm going to go all the way back to, you know, 13 years old. It's, it's a prime age. I mean, I remember my bar mitzvah vividly, you know, yeah. I mean, so, so a building materials company, 13 years yeah. old. How the hell did you find a building materials company at 13 years old and go so, through everything and think, you know, I'm going to put half my money in this? Well, okay. So, so to be, look, it was only $2,000. So half the money was $1,000. So we weren't talking, you know, a king's think, ransom. But at, at 13 years old, that's, that's like, I mean, you think you're, you're a millionaire at 13 years old when you got two grand. I mean, come on. So, oh, and, and, when, and when that 1000 I put in the other one turned into six grand, trust me, I was walking around town like I was a millionaire. Um, but, but yeah, so, so how did I found Boral? It's very simple. I recognized the brand kind of Peter Lynch style because they had these massive construct, um, cement trucks. They had a very distinctive logo. So every time a cement truck rolled by, you saw the Boral name. Mm -hmm. And so I just, you know, I liked the logo or something. And I just started talking to my grandpa about it. He said, actually, they're a pretty good company. Here's why strong balance sheet, high market share, you know, you know, the typical, I guess the, the pros about that kind of industry are there's a, you know, cement, there's a very low weight, to, there's very high, is it low or high? Well, the value of the product is low relative to its weight, right? So you can have regional monopolies in cement manufacturing. So at that time, that was a relatively large part of their business. Obviously, it's highly cyclical depending on home construction, whatever, but the actual manufacture of cement was a pretty good business because they had regional monopolies. And they also had garbage, some other kind of pretty, you know, consolidated uh, exposures as well. And they had a few other interesting angles. I found out that they had a big investment in offshore oil and gas. It was a very small part of the business that grew to be a very big part of the business. But all that I found later, essentially it was, I recognized the company from seeing it on the street. My grandpa gave it the seal of approval. That was good enough for me. Got it. Not too sophisticated. <laughs> At the time, hey, look, that that's I mean, when I had I had when I had Maya Peterson on here, I mean, it was a very similar story when, when she was talking about Hasbro, you know, I mean, there and any anything can can jog you into start thinking like, oh, I'm, that, that I, I use these things or I see these things. Why not see if it's a public company and maybe potentially invest in it? You know, I mean, totally, totally. And, you know, not to go too off track. I think it's, I think it's hugely important because so many people ask me, how do you get into investing or how do you, oh, I'm really interested in wanting to become an investor. How do I get, I don't know how to get started. I can't pick up financial statements and start reading a balance sheet. And I say, listen, what are you interested in? Are you interested in fashion? Are you interested in handbags? Are you interested in gadgets? Are you interested in cell phones? And then they say, oh yeah, I love cell phones. Well, you know, if you had done the work on, you didn't have to be a rocket scientist to pick up a Blackberry and pick up an iPhone 10 years ago, look at one, look at the other, buy Apple shares and short Blackberry and crush the market for a decade, right? Now, it's obviously harder than that, but 
you know, it's, this game is not unapproachable. Yeah, it's difficult to create alpha over time consistently, but if you start with what is interesting to you and what drives your passion just in the general world as you walk around, that's, that's key. That has to motivate your interest to start from some kind of product or area or niche. And, you know, the market's big enough that there's endless niches that will appeal to most all interest types and groups. So that's what I always recommend to people exactly to do that. Oh, a thousand percent. And not to go off on another tangent from, from what you just said there, like I said, the coffee just kind of kicked in is that, you know, when, when, when it's that hindsight bias, right? When you start thinking back of like, oh, if, if when using your example, you look at Blackberry, you look at the iPhone and realizing like, oh, the iPhone, this is just way cooler. Like, even if you don't short Blackberry, you just go long Apple for sure, 10 years. Exactly. You know, the hardest thing is tell, is telling millennials who or, or you know, just, I don't even think it's a millennial thing. I just, any young person, you know, or not even just young people. I think any age, it's very difficult to tell them like, hey, have that five to 10 year outlook on yeah. your potential investment, especially because, you know, even if you could do it, you never know what can happen in that time period where then maybe you have to take some money off the table or whatever, you know, sure. and or you looking to just make a lot of money quicker, you know, or try, um, yeah. you know, so, so it's pretty, so it's pretty interesting when you do that hindsight, you know, like, because I think to myself right now, it, it, like I just did an interview, I just published one with Ryan O'Connor. You think about like the gaming industry. It's like, how do yeah. you look at, how do you look at two or three different names right now? And you think, okay, well, which one is going to be worth more five to 10 years down the road? He had a great thesis on Nintendo, you know, but some others I know are, are talking about EA or some of these other ones, you know, it's, it's still so hard. Yeah, it is. I mean, look, uh, this is not an what's the way to put it i mean there's no substitute for hard work and this doesn't mean no. you, it's not a magic bullet for making money that's clear uh at the same time you, you know it's it's a great starting point right is the way i would put it um if you're looking to get into the game and you're starting just randomly picking up a, a 10k a 200 page 10k and you dive straight into the financials <laughs> i don't care how how dedicated you are unless you're actually interested in the tangible business that's being discussed it's very difficult to stomach a lot of the language in that 10k um yeah. and that's coming from someone who enjoys reading 10ks um so so i just think yeah i think that's the right jumping off point walk a, down the street thousand percent. what what yeah what appeals to you um that's got to be where you you start your investing journey I forgot who I talked to. Um, I'm trying to remember who the interview was with, but I think I remember them saying that, you know, look, if you really want to get into investing, you need to put, just start off by reading 110Ks or 1,010Ks. Just go and, go and read them. Get used to the language. Understand what's be, the information that's being conveyed in here. But I digress. Like I said, the coffee just hit. We're going on tangents. By the way, I wanted to bring up something else. You know, if you look at your background, you know, I can appreciate your humility. I mean, you didn't just go to college in the U.S. You went to Harvard. I mean, what was that experience like as, 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 as an Aussie kid coming by yourself? Here you are. You're at Harvard. You know, what, what was that experience like? Yeah, it was great. I mean, look, uh, everything everything later on in my life was shaped by that experience. You know, if, in Australia, it's actually very unusual to go overseas for university. Most mm -hmm. all people go to university, not just in Australia, but in their hometown, because most, most uh, graduating seniors uh, tend to stay at home and then go to university whilst, whilst living at home. It's not very common to live on campus. So it's quite a different culture to the US. Um, look, I mean, my, my brother also went to Harvard and he's three years older than me. So we were very competitive growing up. 
So anything he did, I then had to do and do it better <laughs> or try to. So as soon as, he, as soon as he decided to go to school in the US, it just happened to be Harvard. If he had gone to you know, Princeton or some other school, and other very, lots of very good schools, I'm sure I would have tried to go to that school as well. Just happened to be Harvard. Um, and the reason was very, uh, I guess the reason was relatively clear. It's because for international students, not many US schools give scholarships. Uh, given give a full scholarship if you need it right so you know I came from a middle-class background but you know university is still very expensive in the US so you know there I think there's two or three maybe Harvard Yale Princeton are the only ones that um, that, that take international students so you know if I if I applied and get in then I'm gonna hit that bid right I'm not gonna stick around in, the, in Australia um, but yeah no it was great because it, it really opened me up to all kinds I mean obviously the education is one thing but Frankly, I, I'm not even sure the education is that relevant, really. Uh, it's more who you meet, the experience, um, being able to meet so many different people I never would have met uh, growing up in Sydney. It was really opened my eyes uh, in, in a variety of ways. Well, and so one more thing on your background before we get to your strategy and your approach and whatnot. How did, where did your passion for wanting to learn uh, Japanese come from? Look, uh, a lot of people think there's, you know, preordained destiny and things like that in life. I'm, I'm kind of the complete opposite of that. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's because I met my wife in a nightclub. Um, but here's another example of why I believe that. My dad met a Japanese teacher at a doctor's office in Sydney, randomly. Um, he didn't ever explain why he started talking to her. I left that left that part aside uh but uh look he, he he met a very nice lady who happened to be a japanese teacher and i started learning just on a very casual basis and was just really into it i mean i was into languages from a young age i you know learned you know italian i studied a couple of other languages at, at high school as well but i was really into japanese it was really uh it just uh, just really appealed to me the characters and the drawing the characters and everything um and so i just kept kept studying <laughs> and Ooh. Then that turned into all these other opportunities related to finance that I honestly never would have had because without being able to speak Japanese, there's no way I would have gotten a job in 2008. So it's crazy. I mean, life really is a series of, you know, coincidences or chance encounters building upon each other um, into something that's unique. And that's, that's certainly been my experience in any case. I mean, it sounds, well, it sounds like there was some, not something ordained or anything, but it sounded like, Japanese was like the ultimate challenge in terms of languages, you know, I mean, you know, I'm not, that not to say, look, I'm terrible at learning languages. I, I'm my, my whole, uh, my whole wife's side of my family is still waiting for me to learn Hebrew at this point, but you know, I, and I, and I, like I said, I got bar mitzvah, I should be able to understand and read it, but I can't one day maybe, but, um, but you know, it sounds, it sounds like it was the ultimate challenge, you know, cause it's such a departure from Italian sure. and English. I mean, uh, you know, all, yeah. all the language. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's totally foreign, right? So it's, I mean, both grammatically and obviously the, you know, the writing, the characters, but um, look, I mean, there's, there's many, there's many different challenges in life. This is certainly one of the harder ones, um, but I don't know. I think, I think learning Japanese is kind of easier than beating the stock market. I think, Interesting. I think that's, I, yeah, I think because, because at the end of the day, even if you don't have a talent, let's say you didn't have a talent for Japanese, right? It's the title or, of this, this pot, you just get, you just gave me the title for, for today's uh, Perfect. interview. Look, that's too, that's too good. If you didn't have a talent for learning a language, but if I dropped you in, if you couldn't speak Portuguese a lick and you never tried, 
and you never had an interest, but I dropped you in Brazil and I left you there for five years. You're going to have to figure out how to survive, right? So, you know, at the same time, if I dropped you in a room full of 10Ks and you didn't have a talent or a passion for investing, I'm not sure you'd be able to analyze your way to, out of that room in five years. You know what I mean? So at least ahead of the market, let's put it that way. So I don't know, definitely a different kind of skill, kind of like maybe a musical instrument or something like dancing, something else like that. But yeah, I guess it just, it just always appealed to me and, you know, I had an interest and it's definitely made some other things in my life look a lot easier though, having studied it. Sounds good. All right. We're switching gears. We're getting into that part where we're talking approach strategy. So, you know, the goal, the goal for today is for, at least for me is like, I, I really want to understand your, your investing approach and break that down. You know, you've been able to cull your entire approach down to this idea of credit-based equity investing. So sure. really what, what does this mean? And then what are your core principles that have led to this being the, the output of that? Sure. That being the so, output. Yeah, sure, sure. So look at, at a very high level, right? So what is a creditor and what is an equity investor, right? So, you know, if you just think about the capital structure, right? If I, if I lend Bobby Craft a hundred dollars, the, the total upside I'm getting is my hundred dollars back, right? As a creditor to Bobby. Maybe I get a dollar back in coupon. Maybe I get $5 in coupon. Maybe these days I don't get any coupon at all, given where interest rates are. But my upside is getting my money back. So by definition, the only things I care about are, well, not what are you doing with the money, of course, but what are the assets you already have? What's the quality of my claim? Who else is ahead of me when I come asking for that $100 back? You know, et cetera, et cetera. I care about my downside, right? I don't really care, I don't care at all about my upside. On the contrast, if I buy $100 worth of Bobby Craft Inc. shares um, when he's listing on the uh, Los Angeles pink sheets, um, you know, my, my upside is unlimited, right? I'm buying a call option on the growth of your business um, and my downside is completely the opposite. My downside's capped at what I invest. So by, by definition, the equity perspective and the credit perspective are almost, almost diametrically opposed. I say almost because it's not always that way, but almost. And therefore, if I apply that to what you just said, credit-based equity investing, it's using this perspective of thinking about downside more than upside, right? Moving, using this perspective of margin of safety to use a you know, commonly used phrase and applying it towards stocks. So translating that, obviously, there is a strong element of deep value running through that approach, right? So obviously, deep value approaches, you know, the idea of buying a dollar's worth of value for 50 cents, so to speak, in the typical Graham Dodd definition or the Seth Klarman definition of it. Um, but in my application of it, there is a more credit angle. So the creditor ultimately cares about things like cash flow, you know, um, you know, asset coverage and extracting value and getting paid, right? So he doesn't just care about, you know, your typical deep value guy, well, not typical, but your quintessential deep value guy, he's very focused on the value element. He's very focused on understanding what the cheapness he's getting, but perhaps traditionally he's less focused on how do I actually get paid back because the safety for him is the cheapness, right? So the typical, you know, Ben Graham approach is if I buy enough 50 cents dollars, then over time those will gravitate back towards a dollar. He, he didn't really say, but I have to get my dollar back in X, X, Y, Z period. Right? So there's a, there's a big risk on your IRR. Um, and obviously if you go down either crappy, the business you buy, even if you buy it cheap enough, time creates its own risks, right? So that's why the creditor approach is very important because a, a good creditor or at least an aggressive creditor doesn't just think about margin of safety and downside protection in the assets. He thinks, how am I getting repaid? 
In other words, are these assets being liquidated to pay me back? Am I taking massive dividends? Are there being, you know, is there management buying back a bunch of stock, which isn't in fact a capital return? These kind of things. So you marry this kind of quintessential deep value approach with this creditor's mentality around getting paid back. That's how I would describe it. Um, and that's on the long side. I should mention that I do longs and shorts. I try to, maybe not fully hedge, but I do try to hedge my longs with my shorts fairly, fairly, um, fairly actively. Uh, and on the short side, there's a much more explicit credit-based focus, and that is obviously credit-based catalysts. So, you know, without going too much into kind of specific examples or what kind of stocks I look at, if I value things like, you know, sustainable free cash flow at a low multiple, um, asset coverage, so buying something at a discount to replacement cost, uh, and then, you know, getting the capital back, so getting repaid through buybacks, dividends, or asset sales, that's what I look for on the longs. Then on the shorts, I look for the inverse, namely structurally burning cash business, a terrible capital structure, so just too much debt. Um, and then that third point, that credit-based catalyst, so something like a covenant breach or almost a covenant breach that is publicized widely and therefore acts as a catalyst or a really bad asset sale at a level far lower than the market expected. These are all what I would term credit-based catalysts because they often, for, for a levered cap structure, those are often the things that can remark an equity down aggressively in a given day. Um, and, you know, you can see this over and over again not just through COVID or Corona, but even in more you know, normal times where something that's carrying four or five turns of debt looks fine. All of a sudden they've come close to busting covenants, equities down 50% in a couple of days. That, that, those are the kind of things I would look for on the short side. So, you know, just to, to as a quick follow up and here and, and I'm yep. always good and I'm always good for one dumb question. That's I, 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 I'm happy to be known for that, you know? Okay. And so here comes my, my, million dollar dumb 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 question you know when when you when i think when i hear the the credit-based equity investing or this approach and i look at and i and i look at some of your collateral here everything that you said you know what what would you say is the big difference between what how your approach is versus that deep value value investor approach you know is it is it your is it your time frame i mean what what exactly is it Hmm. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure I think too much. Even if there isn't one, you know? Yeah, well, what, what I was going to say was, let's use the analogy of a surgeon or even a plumber or any kind of other job that's not investing, right? Like if you take the world's best plumber and the world's average plumber, they're not using a different wrench, right? They're not really using different tools. You know, the world's best heart right. surgeon doesn't use a different scalpel. He's whatever okay the, the world's you know of course in some poor emerging market you know, but you know just he's not using different tools it's really just the application which is what a combination of experience judgment learning obviously some technical execution but ultimately it's judgment experience and learning so you know to the extent that i do things differently than other investors sure i might package them in slightly different ways right the credit-based equity investing is a slightly different application of a typical deep value approach um, and I think there are some real differences on the short side, just, and I'll explain why. Um, but fundamentally, I don't think we're doing anything different. You know, the world's best investors, they do very little tangibly, uh, tangible is probably the wrong word. There isn't some identifiable panacea or, or clear cut thing they're doing differently, right? It's, they're just 
they're taking similar information but processing it a bit better, a tiny bit better, or maybe a site significantly better. They're pulling, extracting the key learnings from a given investment thesis faster, or or yeah, I, th I think that's essentially what they're doing. They're, it's akin to taking the world's best surgeon and the world's 50 se 52nd percentile surgeon and comparing the differences. The tools are largely the same. The thought process might be quite different, but the inputs are really not that different. The output is different because the, the, the mental machination, the, the workflow is different, um, and the sum of learning that creates is different. But the actual, like the nuts and bolts of, of building a spreadsheet, you know, they, could, they could come or go, right? Like your spreadsheet, my spreadsheet, Jim Chanos' spreadsheet, are they, his might be far simpler than mine, probably is actually, that's probably better. Um, you know, that I'm not sure the actual technicals of the tools you apply are all that different. It's more, what do you bring to the party from experience, from learning right. through implementation? Right. Yeah, no, I mean, look, the reason I asked that is because being the, you know, the simpleton with the mic, I'm trying, I, I want to make sure that, you know, anybody listening is like, oh, credit-based equity investing. What the hell does that mean? You know, and like, even after hearing it, it's like, okay, that might as well have been Japanese. You know, like I want, I want, <laughs> I want to, you know, simplify it for, for, for everybody because at the end of the day, you know, it's exactly like you said, it's, we're all using the same tools. It's just kind of a rewrapping of how to, you know, process all that information and then implement it. Right. So absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I mean, so th th this is actually a perfect segue into implementation. You know, you have sure. your process, you have your approach when you're going and looking at potential new ideas, you know, really from there, what, what do your typical ideas then look like both on the long and, and short uh, investment frameworks? Sure. So I think I think I, maybe I mentioned it quickly, briefly, but I'll go over it again. So let's start with the longs. There's markets going up, so most people are more interested in longs than shorts, I guess, structurally. But your typical long for me will look somewhat like this, right? It'll have to be trading at a low multiple of what I deem to be sustainable free cash flow, right? I'm, I'm just not interested in buying stuff at high multiples of free cash flow, just because it, it you know, nothing against growth investors, nothing against, uh, you know, that that mindset or that approach. It's just not doesn't appeal to me philosophically, right? And that the second most important thing, other than when you start investing, looking at areas that interest you, is you have to know what you are. You have to know what kind of investor you are. That's, I mean, that's the sine qua non of investing as far as I'm concerned. I could beat my head against a wall trying to become a GARP investor or a GARP investor all I, all I wanted to, and I go to bed every night wondering if my DCF was right, wondering if, you know, I was pricing the growth rate correctly, wondering what my edge was in calling the growth of this software stock out, out in year six or year seven. It would never work for me. So for me, I like buying businesses at low multiples of sustainable free cash. So what's sustainable free cash? So it's obviously not just one year's free cash flow, right? Um, so you have to adjust for where you are in the cycle. It's, it's business dependent, right? So a steel company versus a, you know, a food distributor, it's always going to be different. You need to bring that knowledge to the table, but you have to adjust for where you are in the cycle. You have to adjust for maintenance versus growth capex, right? So, and you know, this all comes from a creditor's mindset because typically a creditor will look at things like, you know, how levered is it on maintenance capex, right? EBITDA minus maintenance capex, not total capex, because they'll, you know, they won't tax a business for spending on growth within reason. So what's free cash flow adjusting for the cycle, adjusting for difference between maintenance and growth capex, adjusting for things like structural differences in tax rates. It was quite key, right? If I, you know, if I'm sitting in a 28% tax jurisdiction, a 30% tax jurisdiction, but the cash tax rate is only say 10% or 15%, 
because of the way I'm structured or where the earnings are coming from. Essentially, that's free financing, right? If you think about it, a creation of a deferred tax liability that grows and grows and grows over time, that's just free financing. If, unless the tax rules change, that's just money that doesn't have to be funded with equity or with cash. So that's quite important as well for some industries. Um, and then the other thing is structural changes in working capital. So this, this is very important, right? So think about a business like Amazon, right? Where it can grow and generate cash at the same time because the working capital site, they pay their suppliers much slower. They get paid by the customers immediately and they don't carry many inventories or whatever. So there's a, there's a handful of businesses that look like that, right? Service oriented businesses or online businesses where, you know, they pay their suppliers slowly. They don't have to carry inventories or small inventories um, and they get paid by their customers very quickly. However, the vast majority of businesses I look at are not really like that. They're more cyclical businesses, industrial businesses, materials, where you have to build factories, you have to carry inventories, you have receivables because your customers don't pay you immediately, uh, and your suppliers, maybe you pay them a bit slower, but nevertheless, you have working capital. So in those examples, working capital is very important because it means as you grow, it costs cash. The more sales go up, if you have a positive working capital cycle, the more cash it consumes. So... A good example might be an auto manufacturer like Toyota, for example. Excellent company, disclosure, no position in Toyota. Um, but you know, it, it consumes capital as it grows, right? So there's a in my methodology, there's a cost to that, right? Because I want to look at sustainable free cash. So if I if I'm investing in an auto company that has a hot new model, um, but it needs to build out factories, it needs to, you know, build its working capital. Um, you know, as I might be really excited as, as an equity holder, but from a credit perspective, it's not a great credit because they're consuming a lot of cash, um, working capital needs are going up. Actually, the maintenance versus growth capex equation is also skewed because they're spending so much on growth capex. Mm, so basically, you have a scenario where it grows strongly for a few years, but then the product hits a wall and it absolutely implodes. So that's the kind of thing where I totally avoid or maybe look at it as a short or whatever, uh, just because from a credit's perspective, you're not getting any benefit of the growth, right? It's not giving you any cash back. The cash is all going back into the business. So... That's a long way of answering what I look for in a long sustainable free cash flow. I try and measure that. Then I try and put a very, uh, a very low multiple on that, basically under 10 times. Depends on the industry, but I generally won't pay more than 10 times what I think is sustainable. The second thing I look for is this discount to replacement cost. So this is kind of prototypical deep value thinking, but you know, easy to think about for very industrial businesses, right? If I, you know, what does it cost to build a steel mill in Ohio? Okay, it costs X thousand dollars a ton. Well, I'm buying this at half X thousand dollars a ton. Okay. I mean, look, it's, this is not the be all and end all because again, are people willing to pay what it costs to build a new steel mill in Ohio? You have to do that analysis as well. The other part of the analysis is, okay, so if it costs, let's say it costs, I, I'm pulling the numbers out of thin air because I haven't actually looked at steel mills in Ohio, uh, but let's say it costs $5,000 a ton to build a steel, a blast furnace, right? Uh, but let's say there's someone rolling up all the steel mills in Ohio. Okay. Uh, now are they willing to pay the greenfield is more expensive than brownfield all else equal. Um, but are they willing to pay $3,000 a ton for that invested capacity? It depends on how, how good it is, you know, what kind of mill it is, all this kind of thing. So it's not just replacement costs. It's also cost or value to an acquirer is a way to think about it, right? So if I was selling this business, not in the public markets, but in the private markets, what would someone else be willing to pay? Or what, how else would someone value these assets? Um, so that's the second leg of the stool, free cash flow. Second leg of the stool is replacement costs. And the third leg is, um, the third leg is, you know, alignment slash extracting the capital, right? So it's, it's a combination of does management own shares 
or stock or how are they incented and you know what are they doing with that free cash flow that i've identified right so if i'm paying a low multiple of sustainable cash and i'm buying it at a big discount to replacement costs that's all well and good but if management's just doing something dumb with the cash or sitting on like so japan's a great example right i can give you a list of 50 companies right now where i can buy the stocks at a big discount to replacement cost where they're generating sustainable free cash you know they're trading it between hey some of them are trading close to zero enterprise value right so you're not paying anything for the cash generation and yet management just sits on the cash it's funny you mentioned nintendo actually uh, because nintendo is famous for being a cash hoarding company because companies from the kyoto area don't pay out their cash now look nintendo's changed a little bit over the years not to poo-poo your last guest, it could still be a great earnings growth story and a great stock. But a lot of these Japanese stops are value traps because frankly, the managers aren't aligned. They don't own any shares and or they don't derive their sense of self-worth from the stock price. Therefore, they, you know, they sit on this mountain of cash that they clearly don't need that dilutes their returns on invested capital returns on equity clearly that, you know, supposedly provides a downside buffer if things go wrong, but that's not great if you're earning equities, right? You, you want that leverage to the upside. So, so yeah, that's kind of a, an example of how you get caught in some of these situations where you, if you don't focus on getting that capital back. Um, and that's why, you know, I actually, you know, despite spent, having spent a lot of my career in Japan, you know, I don't actually do all that much in Japan at the moment. So, sorry to bring it full circle. Those are the three things I look for on the long side. Um, and, and on the short side, it's, it's very much the inverse of that, right? So if I, if I want to buy stuff at a low multiple of sustainable cash, I want to short stuff at a very high multiple of sustainable cash or better yet, stuff that has no sustainable cash. So businesses that chronically burn cash. So what chronically burns cash? Well, high, high cost curve assets in commodity industries is a, great, is a great example, right? So pick any commodity industry in the world that probably shorted a high cost curve producer on it, whether it be, uh, whether it be uranium, whether it be potash, whether it be LCD panels, whether it be solar modules, that's great hunting ground for a short. An industry where you know, you're seeing expanding production, increased investment, and you're somehow shorting the high cost providers because the cost curve is moving lower and to the left. Um, that's point one. Point two is a busted balance sheet. This is key. Um, simply, look, this is a qualitative measure as much as a quantitative one, right? Some businesses can have 10 turns of debt and be, well, not 10 turns. Some business can have six turns of debt and be okay. Some businesses can have two turns of debt and not be okay, um, depending on you know, how cyclical the business is, whatever. But yeah, if it doesn't have too much debt, that's key because you need debt to, debt acts as the gravity, right? Or it used to, it used to. Debt acts as the gravity in bringing things back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as the gravity in bringing things back closer to fair value, right? Um, without debt, it's very difficult to get involved in names that are even really shitty businesses if they don't have debt on them because ultimately you don't have something tethering that stock or that, that narrative to reality. Um, and in my biggest losses of late have been in names where I thought there was a real debt tether and it turns out there wasn't a debt tether to reality. And so you just had these story stocks that were burning a terrible amount of cash and were really bad businesses, but because there was no debt tether, the market just didn't care. These things just went to the races. Uh, and the third thing is really the key for me. And that is this credit based catalyst tying into the previous point, the idea that, look, if debt is the tether to reality, then when the market realizes, oh, shit, this company is actually really levered, um, they're about to hit the wall, they could hit the wall without a covenant waiver, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's what catalyzes that big move to the downside that allows you to get paid. 
Um, so you need all three things. You need the bad business burning cash, the horrible balance sheet with too much debt, and you need that credit kind of, you need that, um, that credit wall that the company's about to run into. Woo, there we go. That was great, man. That was great. I love that. So, so now my, my next question here has to do with this idea of uh, position sizing. You know, once, yep. you've, once you've identified an idea, both long and the short side, you know, what is your process for building a position? And then does your position sizing philosophy differ when you're considering a short or long position? For sure, it has to differ. By, by definition, it has to differ just given the, the different risks of, of, of shorts and longs. So, look, I mean, sizing, sizing is a very tricky topic. I mean, sizing is at the at one time very personal uh in in that you know people have people have different risk risk appetites right um look i i can only really speak for myself so 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 i'll start with that look i believe fundamentally in concentration um just because i look i, I try to i try to look at the markets and think how little i know about them right so so i think it's it's kind of self-evident that when you wake up in the morning the vast majority of stocks are fairly priced or close enough to fairly priced, right? Um, by definition, that kind of has to be true, um, given how many eyeballs are on the market and given how smart everyone is, or the marginal participant in the stock market, right? If they're intelligent, then there shouldn't be a bunch of 50 cent dollars lying around. It just doesn't conceptually make sense. So I think the, the academic definition of that is the market is semi-form efficient, right? It's not fully efficient, otherwise you and I wouldn't have jobs. Uh, but it's also not inefficient because otherwise everyone would be making money. Maybe it is more inefficient than, than we know. Anyway, um, but in that regard, you know, if, if you think the market is mostly right most of the time, uh, and if you think the marginal participant is competent, highly competent, then by definition, how are you going to beat the market on your 50th idea? How are you going to beat the market on your 30th idea? Really? It shouldn't. And yet you meet a lot of people who have 100 stocks in their portfolio. It just doesn't make sense to me. So look, I would always rather live and die with my say top ten ideas, um, than than kind of put eggs in a in my thirtieth, fortieth, fiftieth idea. Now, when you're running professional money, it doesn't really in very rare circumstances can you actually invest a client's portfolio in say seven or eight ideas. There are a few funds out there like that. I think Ackman's one of them, um, but for the most part, it's, it's quite difficult, right? But it it does really limit your opportunity set for liquidity, for example. But for me personally, look, right now I have 10 to 15 longs. I have 20, almost 30 shorts, um, which is basically the max I want to have. I don't really want to have more than 30, 40 names, both sides of the book. Um, and you know, whether I'm managing a very, very large sum of money, or whether I'm managing just my own money, uh, it's going to, it's going to remain that way. Now translating that to individual position sizes, Look, it's, it's hard to give, again, it's pretty name specific and the situation, I don't want to give too, too many specifics. But look, I more than say tricky, let's say. Um, and on the short side, once you get above a 5%, I mean, a 5% short is, is pretty chunky and those things can really snowball on you. So the shorts really have to be a tiny fraction of the longs, even if you have equal conviction of them, just given the asymmetry of the payoff is so far against you. Um, and so I, I've learned that recently <laughs> on a few names. Um, and so, yeah, my shorts, look, I'm very rarely, if ever, will I ever have a 5% five, five short in my book. Most of them are in the 1% to 2% range. Got it. All right. So, I mean, I also have to ask, I mean, where, when, when you've identified a potential investment and 
you're now looking to, you know, take a position both on the long and the short side. I mean, yeah. from, from a ongoing qualitative uh, perspective, you know, what are some of the things that will cause you to either, let's say, size up more or then potentially either sell out of that long position or on the short side, maybe add to that position a, a little bit further? You know, what are, what are some typical things that you look for? Okay. Um, again, it's very, again, it's very kind of situation specific, right? Because investing is this thing where you need to be, you need to be both humble enough to know when you're wrong or have an inkling of when you're wrong, but you need to be arrogant enough to know when you're right and double down. Because if I, if I think about my career, very rarely am I ever going to buy something and have it be a full-size position and then work almost immediately. In fact, I can't remember a time when I wasn't underwater either on a long or a short within the first, say, I don't know, month of investing. And therefore, you're always questioning, okay, am I wrong or is the market just you know, volatility in the market? So you need this kind of dual mentality at all times where you're very confident at the right time, but also very not confident. You're very humble. Not humble is even the wrong word, just willing to be proven, willing, open, have an open mind to the fact that you could be very wrong um, at other times. And it's very, very difficult kind of treading that line. I mean, there's no real, there's no real, really easy way to delineate when you can identify one or the other, other than by saying it comes with experience. Um, and so the way I've kind of devolved over the years in, in terms of negotiating that, that path between those two perspectives is, look, whenever I try and underwrite investment, when I commit capital, whether it be you know, a starter position or a full-size position, so I'm happy to do a starter position, which might be one, 2% on a long, whatever, then do the work if I, you know, if I can identify the key drivers and I, and I know quickly that it's gonna be interesting which obviously you can do through experience. But by the time I build a full position, I will have a set list of bullet points in my thesis. And if there is any kind of red line violation of those bullets, you just have to get out. You have to get out. That might not be full out immediately for liquidity reasons, but that might be knocked a position right back to a starter position. So you at least limit your loss potential. Um, and there've been times where I haven't done that, where the th thesis has crept, so to speak. Um, and invariably, I've regretted it, right? So essentially what happens is by the time any of my top seven or eight core theses uh, have been uh, worked through and have been concluded and I've built those positions, there'll be you know, two, literally two or three bullets that I expect to happen. One of those might be, um, I'm, I'm trying not to speak in specifics, uh, just because just I can't th think of any specific example on the top of my head, but you know, a hypothetical example might be, look, this thing is trading at a huge discounts replacement cost there's a new CEO involved. Um, he's highly incented to either sell the company or sell a division of the company. Once he does that, the leverage burden goes away. Um, this thing can get valued on a normal multiple, which is 2x of what it is. This is kind of a typical setup, right? A value unlock, you know, bad, good co, bad co, value unlock sales strategy. So let's say I buy it at a dollar, okay? And let's say six months later, it's at 80 cents. Nothing's changed. No worries. I might even have picked up a few signs along the way that, you know, they are going to sell this division or there's some scuttlebutt, they're going to get a better price and whatever the market's just down or, you know, it's, you know, whatever happens to be. So in that situation, clearly I'd be more inclined to add, right? But then let's say they come out and say, listen, we decided not to sell that asset because the only bidder was someone who was going to give us an extremely expensive sale leaseback financing at L plus a thousand and there were no other bidders. Um, and as a result, we have to refinance this bond and it's going to be a 15% coupon. 
this is a simplistic example, obviously, and it makes it easy to tell you that you should just cut and run because it, one of the things you thought was going to happen, a sale, an attractive refinance, value creation, is just off the table, just completely off the table. So oftentimes it's not that easy for you. Oftentimes it's more nuanced. Um, I think you're talking with, well, sorry, maybe it was on one of your other podcasts on your network where Marge was talking with someone else about a mistake they made, not a mistake, but an investment that didn't work out where maybe it was Blue Links. I think it was BXC. Uh, where they, you know, it, it kind of evolved over time that the thesis as outlined by the managers when they came in with the merger, deleveraging through asset sales, it kind of get, kept getting pushed out a couple of quarters. The, the, ex, the uh, explanations from management kind of got a little bit more tenuous as time went on. So it's never that clear cut, but that's the kind of approach I'll take. If I'm ever proved bright line, red line wrong on one of my original thesis points, you just got to get out. Um, so that's kind of where I've evolved. But if I'm still confident in my original thesis and it's just the price has moved a lot, um, providing I'm not over, you know, max risk size or whatever, I'll, I'll add, I'll add. Um, and then when I'm proven wrong, I just got to run for the hills. Just have to. Very good. Well, hey, I, I also have to ask, I mean, look, you are a, you're a global investor. By, by global investor in this sense of the word, before I even ask the question, you know, you've lived all over the world and have invested in different markets. I mean, do you still look globally for potential ideas or do you kind of stick to one particular area of, uh, of the equity markets? So I, my, my stated kind of hunting ground is developed market mid caps. So I think for my approach, the, the vast majority of the juice is in developed markets. One, because I've never been a macro guy, it's very hard to invest in emerging markets without taking an explicit macro view. I don't mind taking implicit macro views, right? So I don't mind betting on a really cheap gold company that trades at half of NAV with gold at a very low price. If gold goes up, great, but that's, you know, that's the cherry on top of the sundae, right? So that's what I would call an implicit macro view. Or if I buy some really distressed oil play, you know, that obviously is levered to a higher oil price, but could still work if oil does, as long as oil is not $20 about, you know, that kind of thing. I'm happy to make those implicit views. I'm much less excited to make an explicit view on buying an Argentinian utility, for example, where you're, look, I'll give you an example. Argentina just went bust for the, I don't know, the ninth time in a hundred years or something like that. But a year ago, Argentina was hot, right? You, people were buying Argentinian stocks left and right. Argentinian debt was on a tear. They issued a hundred year bond. You could buy Argentinian regulated utilities at two times, three times cash flow. Regulated utilities, right? So how are you going to lose money? And not, they're not really levered either, some of these things. How are you going to lose money? Well, I'll tell you how you're going to lose money. You're going to lose money if the peso goes down by 50%. And if there's a government, new socialist government that recuts the rules. Guess what? All those things now trade at half times cash flow. So valuation is no defense in emerging markets. It's just not. So that's not to say I don't have any emerging markets investments. I have one right now, but it's a very short leash with emerging markets. On the other hand, in developed markets, overwhelmingly, I found that my kind of approach works. That is the rules of credit tend to apply. Um, they might not apply immediately. They might take time, but over time they do tend to apply. So capital markets function as they should and macro risk is implicit rather than explicit. So my core three markets are North America, overwhelmingly the US, but some, every now and then Canada, North America, Japan, and Western Europe. So, you know, Japan is actually much more liquid um, than Western Europe on the whole. But again, I look at mid mark mid caps mostly. So that's everything from say a couple hundred million, 500 million at the, at the low end to 
a couple of billion is what I consider. I don't really look too much higher than that. And that's just more because I think there's more, less, less covered stocks in that area. Got it. I mean, that mid cap, that sounds like a little, you know, you're, you're dipping into micro cap territory to, to mid cap. That's sure. Sure. Oh, that's fair. I'll take that. That's fair. Every now and then I'll, I'll dip into Come a on. small cap stock. Why not? Hey, come on, why not? You know, I mean, this, this is the micro cap podcast, right? This is a micro cap podcast. Come on, you know, you take, take a little dip. It's okay. You know, we don't, we won't, har- we won't, we won't, we won't harm you too much. You know, if uh, you know, if you pick right, of course. The water's warm. <laughs> the water's warm, right? Come on in. The micro. Yeah, yeah. Come on in. You know. So, all right, man. So, about to get to my favorite question that I love to ask everybody that comes on. What investing experience would you say impacted you the most in your career thus far? Wow, this is a tough one. I haven't thought about this. Like the did you, did you hear how I asked that too? That was a very that was a very like you know this is you know what investing experience. Like I feel like that was like the my the that you know. Anyways, okay, go. You sound like Marlon Brando, Brando in The Godfather a little bit. Um, it's tough because every I'll take that. It's, I feel like the more the more successful you are at investing, each lesson becomes much more consequential, right? In in financial terms, so. You know, the lesson I learned when I was, you know, 13, where I made a lot of money on this tech stock, but I ultimately gave back half of it, whatever, when the thing, not half, but, you know, of my original stake, but I gave back a large dollar number when, you know, basically the bubble ended and I was caught holding a a loss-making tech stock when the bubble burst. You know, that was a hugely consequential lesson, but I only learned it with a couple thousand bucks, right? Whereas the bath I took on Tesla last year, full disclosure, no longer short Tesla, but I was short Tesla last year. You know, that was obviously actually a much more consequential decision. Um, but I guess other than pure dollar numbers, yeah, I mean, honestly, I think, I think I hate to go to such a, a well-drawn well as Tesla, but I think, I think it probably is a good example um, of that fundamental truth, that aphorism that, two times crazy does not equal two times crazy. It's just still crazy, right? And not two times, 10 times, 50 times. I mean, literally going back to my point about credit being a tether. I mean, sorry, my, my battery is still there. Okay. No worries. Yeah. We're all good. Um, going back to my point about debt being a tether, like the whole reason I went into the Tesla short, if you, if you're familiar with that story at all was there was a period in early last year, April, May, where it was quite unclear if they could access capital markets because Musk was being sued by the SEC and they didn't have a registered a registration statement on file. So it was unclear if they could issue equity stock was going down a lot. There were potential margin calls on Musk's position. So it was almost like a credit trade at that point. I mean, the, the market cap was still optically high, but it was essentially becoming a distressed credit. So I was of the view that they would have to do a very dilutive, deeply dilutive, almost like a pipe pipe structured equity raising to get through a convertible bond maturity that was very large. Um, now, once they passed that stock actually kept going down, which threw me stock kept going down. So if the stock had started rallying, I probably would have covered a lot sooner, but because the stock kept going down, I thought it was right. Um, but in reality, we look at Tesla stock today at $2,000, you know, literally 10 X in a year when then the fundamentals have gotten worse. I mean, there's no debate really. The fundamentals are worse. It's just underlines that key learning that there's no such thing as two times crazy equaling two times crazy. It's just still crazy. It could go 10 X. It could go 50 X. It could go hundred X. There's literally no limit. And so I think the most important lessons, investing lessons I've learned 
have all been on the short side, ironically, not the long side. Um, because the asymmetry of the payoff is such that it really, it, those lessons are just so expensive, right? You really learn those lessons um, in a way that you cannot wear. You invest 100% of your money and you lose it all. It's easy to just say, look, I just got it wrong. You know, I, you know, I, I was going into it to make three, four, five X. I bought this microcap stock that had a new biotech treatment. It didn't pan out. It happens, right? I'll get it on the next one. Kind of like a venture capital type approach. On the long side, it's very easy to write off those kind of lessons, even if you don't lose all your money or even if it's less painful. On the short side, risk management is banging your head against those lessons every single day you have the position almost. So I think, I think something like Tesla was a very consequential lesson for me in how I manage risk on these shorts and indeed even the types of shorts that I, that I look at going forward. That's probably the one so far. I think that's a great place to end it. You know, um, Jeremy, with that, I mean, where, where can my audience go and find more information about you, Raper Capital, and follow you on social media? Sure. Um, you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter at Puppyeh1, P-U-P-P-Y-E-H1. You can, you can add me and, and follow me there. Um, also, you can find me at rapercapital.com, which is www.repercapital, rapercapital.com. Um, probably the catchiest finance website, I'll have to say, that's going around, um, given my, uh, my, my unfortunate and interesting last name. Um, you're being such a gentleman and not commenting about it, but don't worry, it's been said before. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, so you can just follow me on social media. You can check out my website, my offering there. Um, and yeah, you can reach out to me on email as well. There's an email address on the website and happy to, uh, to connect with, with most folks um, as and when. Uh, I'm not as frequent as I used to be with the replies given I have a young baby, but I do. Oh, congrats, uh, I do. dude. Me too. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Oh, awesome. Congrats. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, keep, you know, keeping me up at night and uh, not so much time for the Twitter machine, but, uh, but yeah, feel free to reach out. And thanks. Oh, how old? No, of course. She's, Wait, hold on. How old? She's, she's nine months old now. Oh, that's awesome. Nice. I, I was seven month old. So it's uh, oh, the best, dude. right? It's, yeah, it's getting to that fun time where she's starting to babble a lot, move around more, always smiling, always happy. So I relish every non-investing moment because it's it's a moment with family. So that's one of the upsides of quarantine. That's for damn sure. I could not agree with that more. I, everyone always says this time between like the six to like 10, nine, 10 month time is like the best. And it is, I, I co-sign that one all day, every day. It's it's just an amazing time. So I have a baby okay. girl too. So it's, that's, oh. you know, we'll have to have them do like an investing play day. You know what I mean? Yeah. That sounded so corny, but who cares? I don't really care. You know, they'll do like a little, uh, they'll, they'll trade, they'll trade some ideas. They're like, look, I like this milk. No, I like this bottle, you know, I've and then, uh, and I'll give us some investing ideas. I'm going to get her Dave Portnoy style. I'm going to get her a Scrabble bag and get her to pull out some letters and she can throw them <laughs> in the screen. See if we come up with a good stock. <laughs> it's actually, Hey, just for, for shits and giggles. That just sounds fun. Fun as hell. Why, why not? Right. You know, it, like she, she'll ask you, she'll be like, Hey, how did I build my first portfolio? I'm like, huh, I got the video. Here you go. You know, just having them <laughs> pull out the letters. That's hilarious. All right, dude. Well, with that, man, that, this was a lot of fun. Can't wait till our next chat. Um, I'm sure you'll, you're invest, you're, you're invited to our investors roundtable. So I'm sure we'll see awesome. you on there. And um, yeah, man, thank you for joining me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on, Bob. It's been a pleasure. Speak to you soon. Speak to you soon. Yeah, just to confirm, to be clear, I do not have any long or short positions in any of the names we discussed. 
Um, so just to, just to go on the record with that. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.